The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning. Uh, Welcome again to Morgan Hill Bible Church. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to open it to the book of John chapter 3. John chapter 3, if you're new to Christianity, that's the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we're going to be primarily in that looking at a story from John chapter 3 this morning. As you turn there, and before we jump in this morning, I want to give you a quick update. I was asked the same question multiple times in multiple different settings, and so thought, hey, there's probably a lot of you who have the same question, and that is now that we're two, over two months in now to going to three services, lots of people are asking me, hey, how is it going, going to three services? How is it? See, I'm at all of our services every week. Most of you have the audacity. You only come to one. I'm just kidding. You're not expected to come to multiple, right? So you, you don't know, right? Like, you don't know what goes on earlier or later or vice versa depending on which service you go to. So I first off just want to say thank you to the so many of you in our church family who have stepped into service and leadership, expanding to three services. We highlighted that a lot over the summer, and we've been overwhelmed by the response of people leaning in in our kids' ministries, as greeters, as ushers, and we're so thankful for you because going to three services would not have been possible without us together as a church family stepping forward, and we just want to say thank you for that. Secondly, we have seen a regular and consistent increase in the number of people who are attending on Sunday mornings. And that is a blessing, not because we look at our attendance numbers and we have some numeric goal that we want to hit or we're better if we're a certain size or not, but every person who comes is a life that is loved by God. And the mission of Morgan Hill Bible Church exists and continues to be to connect people into a vital relationship with Jesus. And you know, if you were here this summer, we've, we've moved the three services to create more space because we always want anyone who wants to hear about Jesus to have a seat and have a place where they can hear about the gospel and connect with Jesus. And so, so we're encouraged by that. And I just want to continue us to challenge to think of that as we think of the holidays, as Shani reminded us, are already coming. During the holiday season, people are open to church invitations unlike any other time of the year. And so we've been challenging you to pray for five people in your life who need Jesus. Start praying for who you're going to bring with you to some of these Christmas events, who you're gonna bring with you to Christmas Eve services to hear the message of Jesus. Well, we are wrapping up this morning our Explore God series. And our final question today, as we've been walking through Explore God, is this. It's, can I know God personally? Can I know God personally? Now, My hope is, if you've been at Morgan Hill Bible Church for more than one or two weeks, that this is like the worst kept secret of our church, right? It's not like we're going to talk about Jesus today and the other 51 weeks, you'll just have to guess what we actually believe, right? But that we talk about this regularly, but we're going to specifically focus on this, kind of all the other questions that we've been asking about the Bible and about pain and suffering and purpose, and all these things have been good, but ultimately, where does it meet the road? Can we truly know God? And this morning, we're going to do so looking through the lens of a story, an interaction with Jesus with someone in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. So let me dive in for us. John, chapter 3, starting at verse 1, says this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Now today's outline, if you like to fill in the blanks and follow, is actually one long sentence that will run together. And the first part of that sentence that we see here right away is this, is that we can be saved not by our works. That we are saved not by our works. We're introduced here right away to a man named Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. So if you don't know who the Pharisees are, the Pharisees were the religious elite, those who studied and taught the Old Testament scriptures to those at their times. This would have been a very biblically literate and moral man in society. And it says there in verse 2 that he came to Jesus by night. Now what I love about the Bible is there's no accidental words in there. Because you may think, well, why does it matter that Nicodemus came by night? What, what's the big deal if he came at noon or he came at 6 p.m.? Yeah, that's when it'll be dark at 6 p.m. tonight. I hate, break, hate to break it to you, right? You got that extra hour of sleep, but you pay for it in the back end. What, why does it matter between the two? What's the big deal? Well, ultimately, it's, the, it's twofold why this detail is here. First, he came by night, meaning he came in secret, he came in secret. It wasn't during the day as Jesus was out interacting with the Pharisees, but Nicodemus was drawn, and so he came in secret to Jesus. Also, throughout the Gospel of John, light and dark imagery is always used to convey a spiritual reality of the people. And so when Nicodemus comes by dark, it's not just that it's in secret, but it's the reflection of his own heart, that he's coming to Jesus in spiritual darkness, that he's coming apart from God. And he says to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. Notice that he doesn't say you are a prophet or even the prophet, the Messiah come from God, but you're a teacher. How does he know this? He says, because of the signs that you do. Now, this is just my fun biblical thing that I like. Maybe you'll be fascinated by this. Signs, especially in the Gospel of John, are the miracles that Jesus does that prove he is God. Now, if you look at John 1 and 2, up to this point, Jesus has only done one miracle. Nicodemus refers to multiple miracles that he has seen. A reminder, what you have in the Bible is not the complete exhaustive list of all that Jesus did or said. Many, many, many more miracles and signs proving to who he is were done that even others see, like Nicodemus here, has seen multiple signs that Jesus has done. Verse 3, Jesus answered him. I love it. Did Nicodemus ask a question? <laughs> Jesus is answering the question in his heart. He, he's seeing his need and knowing what it is. And he says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again, born from above, e either way, conveying both thoughts that, that something has to happen from the outside to change us. This kingdom of God is God's rule, God's reign that exists forever, but is a present and current reality for those who are in a relationship with God. Now, Nicodemus is shocked as we're going to look at his responses, not only because of what Jesus says, but Nicodemus is shocked because he would have assumed he was already in the kingdom of God. If you would have asked Nicodemus, are you in the kingdom of God? He would have said, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a ruler of the Jews. Of course I'm in the kingdom of God. And here's Jesus saying, this is what you need to have happen to be in the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. See, what Nicodemus 
misplaced. So often, what I see even today in our world and in our time, people misplace the idea of what salvation is and how it takes effect and works in our lives. And two examples that illustrate Nicodemus's mistakes and ours that, that pull for, from common experience from all of us from school days. For some of you, this is jogging back into ancient memory. School, remember that way back in the day? Uh, one of them is the idea of a group project. I'm, I'm convinced now there are two types of people in group projects. Those who care a lot, so they're willing to do all the work, and those who recognize it, and so they will do none of the work. And they always find each other, right? I remember when I was in junior high, I was a very awkward junior high. Not that I'm not awkward now, but I was very awkward back then. I grew way too quick, so I was very skinny. I was clumsy. I had really bad acne, but I was always very smart. And so suddenly, like when it came to group projects, I thought I was getting popular because like the cool kids would come talk to me. I'd be like, yeah, I'm getting popular. Looking back now, I'm like, they just wanted to get an A. They didn't, they didn't care about me. Why? Because if it's a group project and they realize that they're like, hey, it's not like if someone else does all the work and it's good that they get an A and I get a C or a D, but the group, all of us get an A. And sometimes we view salvation the same way that if our lives are attached to someone who's religious, then we're good because we're with so-and-so. Nicodemus says, hey, I'm a ruler of the Jews. We're God's chosen people. I don't need anything. I, I was born into the right family, born into the right heritage. I've got it all taken care of. You don't hear that, that word now. And what you hear now is when you ask people, oh, are you religious? They'll say something like, well, oh, um, my, my grandma practices Christianity. She goes to church regularly. And you're like, cool. Right? Are you, well, uh, my parents have a very active faith and they, and they give away a lot of their time and money to the church. You're like, hey, I'm, I'm really glad your mom and dad do that. But, but what your parents do and what your grandparents do and your friend, that doesn't change your spiritual condition. See, a relationship with God is not a group project. You don't slide into heaven because you're associated with other people who believe in God. It's a matter of personal choice, a personal decision that each and every one of us have to make. And so it's not this group project where we just get to go in because of the work that others around us have done or the beliefs of others. It's something that matters to every single one of us individually. The second illustration from school that we often get this misconception of salvation is this idea of grading on a curve. Did you ever have a class like this, grading on a curve? I remember I experienced this in college for the first time. It was in Greek exegesis class. Yes, it's still all Greek to me, not even after I passed the class. It still all is. And I remember I took this test, and I was like, that was a very hard test that I think I bombed. And I did bomb it pr pretty bad. I got the, the grade back on it, and it said, I believe it said 74. I'm like, man, that's, that's not that great. With a line crossed through it, the next to it, 97. I was like, I bombed it, but not as bad as everyone else bombed it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? Because the idea of grading on a curve is there is a scale of what perfect is, right? Of what 100 is. But grading on a scale is we'll take you and we'll just compare you to the people around you. And you can find yourself somewhere on that scale. And hopefully it helps you, right? If you're better than most of the people around you. And for a lot of people looking at their own life and their own morality, we grade ourselves on a scale. We find that crazy aunt and uncle, we have that cousin that's off the deep end, and we're like, I'm not like that. Like, I may not have my life all the way together, but we all have that coworker that we're like, you think I waste my time? Look at that person. Like, that, that, their, their life is a train wreck. And what do we do? We find people that are a little worse than us, and so we grade ourselves on a scale and be like, hey, look, I'm okay. Because I can always find, you can always find people who are worse off than you are. 
When it comes to morality, when it comes to righteousness, the scale in the Bible is not the people around you. The scale is God himself. And suddenly when we stop grading on a scale and we compare ourselves and our goodness to God, we are far, far short. Romans 3 puts it this way. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter where you are, if you've lived a good life or if you've lived a bad life, you cannot be saved by your works. He continues this story. Nicodemus answers, verse four. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The second part of our sentence on what, what it means to have a personal relationship with God is we're not saved by works, but by what Jesus has done. But what Jesus has done, he starts to introduce this idea that a work of God, something outside of ourselves, is necessary for the salvation, for being born again, in Jesus' language, to occur. Nicodemus is baffled, verse 4. He's like, um, Jesus, do I need to give you a, a biology lesson? Like, how does this, what, what is going on here? And Jesus is like, I don't need a biology lesson. Nicodemus, you need a spiritual lesson. Let me explain to you. And he says, no one, it, one must be born of water and the spirit. Water and the spirit. Now what Jesus is doing there is he's referencing back to the Old Testament prophecies concerning the day where the spirit would be flowed out onto people. And then Nicodemus as a Pharisee should have known, should have recognized this. And in the Old Testament, water, the cleansing power of the spirit and the spirit itself coming is often put together. And so when Jesus is talking about water and the spirit, he's not talking about two things, but he's talking about the cleansing power when God does a work within your life. The clearest reference that Jesus is quite likely pulling from is in Ezekiel chapter 36, looking forward to this day when the Messiah would come. And it says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, he says there to Nicodemus, he says, don't be, don't be marveled, don't be shocked that I say you must be born again. Now, if we were down in the South, the accurate translation of what Jesus says to Nicodemus is, don't be surprised that I say all y'all must be born again. You must be born again there is plural. He's in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Nicodemus. And, and see, Nicodemus isn't an isolated problem, that Nicodemus needs a work of God for salvation. He's saying you all must be born again. Nicodemus, it's not just you, it, it's the reality of all mankind. And to give an example of, of how this will come about, he uses this illustration in verse eight of the wind, the wind blowing. And you, he, you hear it and you see the effects of it, but you don't know where it comes from. Now there's this beautiful thing that Jesus is doing in that in, in their languages, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the same word for spirit is the same word for breath and the same word for wind. 
And we know how to translate it based on the context around it. And so when he says that, he's referencing this idea of the, the wind of the spirit will blow and breathe life into dead things. Since Jesus has just referenced this connection of water and the spirit from Ezekiel 36, he very likely here is thinking of the next chapter in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37, where the prophet is given this vision and he walks out over what is called the valley of dry bones or the valley of dead bones. And God asks the prophet, what can give life to this? And the prophet's like, um, nothing, they're dead. They're dead. No nothing can bring this back to life. But then the wind begins to blow and breathed into these dead bones is the spirit bringing them life. And suddenly there's life where there was only death. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is what you need is not just a better life. You don't need some principles for doing things better. You need a radically new life that can only come from a work of God. Nicodemus, what you need only God can provide because only God can bring dead things to life. And that's where we find ourselves, that the spirit is moving and drawing us. And for some of you, perhaps the spirit has been moving in your heart and you've suddenly been wrestling with questions and, and thinking about things. What is that? Why, why are you wondering these things? Well, that is the spirit of God, the spirit of God beginning to move and to draw you and to breathe life into you, that it's only a work of God that can save us. So Nicodemus again answers verse nine, Nicodemus said to him, um, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The final phrase to our sentence is, when we place our faith in him. That we're saved not by our works, but by what Jesus has done when we place our faith in him. Jesus uses this example of earthly and heavenly things, basically emphasizing, hey, these are, these are the basics, Nicodemus. This is what basic life with God is, is that God will breathe. A work of God is needed, that we are spiritually dead. We cannot do it on our own. And, and what, what Nicodemus needs to place his faith in, he, he gets to at the end. He says, no one has gone into heaven except that which has come from heaven. That's the son of man. That's a, an Old Testament title of the Messiah that Jesus regularly applies to himself. And then he flips it, I've come down from heaven. And then in verse 14, he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. Now, I love what Jesus is doing here. If you're like, wait, Moses, serpents, isn't that the Red Sea guy? You're right, you're right. What, what Jesus does here is he draws back from a random five or six verse story in the book of Numbers that if he didn't reference it here, and even though he does reference here, most of us read over in our Bibles when we read and go, that's weird, on to the next thing. And we miss this awesome picture that's in it. And so let's look again, Numbers chapter 21. It's when the people of Israel are coming out of the land of Egypt. They're not yet to the promised land. And it says this in Numbers 21, starting at verse four. This is the story Jesus is referencing. 
From Mount Or, they sent out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. If you've read through the stories, you know this is not the first or the only time this has happened. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Just real quick, um, is there no food or do you just not like the food? Right? The condition of us asking for God's provision and then, and then complaining to God because he provides, but it doesn't meet our expectations is not a new thing. It's all the way back. That God provides and we don't like what he's done. We would prefer something different. Verse six, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. You're like, well, that escalated quickly. It did. <laughs> Verse seven, and the people came to Moses and said, all right, we get it. We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at that bronze serpent and lift. And Jesus uses this as a metaphor for what he is about to do. See, just as Moses lifted up this, this serpent that the people would look on it and live, he says, so too must the son of man be lifted up. Now lifted up there is clearly for Jesus a reference to the cross. It's a reference to the cross. And we see this because every other time this phrase lifted up is used in the gospel of John in John 8 and twice in John 12, he's clearly talking about the cross. And so here Jesus is talking about the cross as well. In fact, Nicodemus should have gotten this right away if he knew his Old Testament. The first verse of the longest prophecy talking about the death of the Messiah on a cross says this in Isaiah chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's talking about the cross. See, what Jesus is doing is, is he's helping Nicodemus understand this truth, that God provides a way of salvation, but it's still necessary for people to respond. God provides a way of salvation, but it's still necessary for people to respond, right? He's saying, listen, just as Moses lifted up this serpent in the wilderness, what was needed? Because the serpent was there, was then everyone magically healed anytime they're bitten. No, they had to do a response. To look on something is the same, has the same idea in the Bible, placing your faith of trust when you set your eyes on something. And they were setting their eyes, meaning they were believing that what God had provided would save them. Now imagine if you're alive during this time. This probably sounded ridiculous to a lot of the people, right? It probably wasn't the first time someone had a snake bite. And it was like, what do you need? Do you take the venom out? Do you bandage it? No, no, no. You run and you look at this thing that Moses made. And you'd be like, I'm not going to do that. Like, that sounds stupid. The fact that Moses had made it, in fact, that God had provided a way for salvation, didn't save them. What saved them? It's when they looked at it. It's when they believed in it. See, Jesus says that salvation will come when he is lifted up, but it's not enough just to know that Jesus died. Are we looking to him for salvation? Are we believing in him? Are we trusting in him for our salvation? See, we can know God personally when we respond to him in faith. 
And the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, it was for your sin and for my sin, that he took the punishment that was placed on us and salvation is found in him alone. As it says earlier in the book of John, John chapter one, verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. And so the question is, when we look at what Jesus has done, when we look at what God sent him to do for us, the question that comes into my mind, I don't know about yours, is why? Why would God do this? Why would God send his son to be lifted up, to die for people? Well, the next verse gives us the answer. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You undoubtedly have heard of John 3.16. You probably have this memorized or certainly have seen it before. The reason that this verse is so popular and known is perhaps more so than any other passage in scripture, it conveys the heart of God to us. That God so loved the world that while we were sinners, he sent his son and whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now what's amazing there is that first verse, I love that first phrase, for God so loved the world. Now what's amazing about God's love for the world is not just or primarily that there's so many people in the world. Like yes, that, that is an awesome amount of love. That God's love extends to all people. The offer of salvation in Jesus is for all who would believe in him. God's love for the world goes out for all. But in the Gospel of John, world normally refers to not the amount of people in the world, but mankind in rebellion against God. And so what Jesus is highlighting here is the amazing thing about God's love is not that God's love is so big, but God loves people that are so bad. It's not that God loves so many people that's the most extraordinary things about him, but it's the kind of people that God loves. It's broken and messed up people like me and like you. That's who God loves, that God so loves the world. It's the most remarkable thing about his love. Romans puts it this way, that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you don't have this misconception that I have to do something to earn God's love. Don't have this misconception that when I start to get my life together and I start going to church and I start doing my devotions and then I start giving like all these things, then God will love me. No, no, at, at your very lowest, at your very worst, when you felt alone, rejected by everyone right there, God loved you. At your very worst, God loved you right there. See, that's, that's why God sent his son for us. When it comes to us, the question, well, why should we believe in this? Why, why should we believe in what Jesus has done for us? To me, it's the, the, one of the best answers is right here is that the love of God, when you believe in Jesus, the love of God will now become the overarching theme of your life. And if you're a Christian, if you're walking with Jesus today, the love of God is the overarching theme of your life and it's far better than anything else the world could offer. That was the first question we asked is what's the purpose of life? And finding identity and value in the love of God for us is far better than anything the world could ever have. See, we know that the love of God defines us because it's never been based on our performance but on the promise of God. He loved us at our worst so he will always love us. If you're a child of God, you know it to be true. As 1 John 4 says, this is love, 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to pay for our sins. Romans 8 says that he's convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, we all seek to be loved, don't we? All of us have this desire deep down in our souls to have this unconditional love be true in our lives. For some of us, we've felt the lack of love in our lives for a long time. Maybe for some of us, it goes back even to childhood when we felt rejected by parents, by loved ones, by friends. Maybe our wounds come later in life, but every single human being has this desire for unconditional love. And the reason you have it is because you were made to receive the unconditional love of God and you'll never find it from anywhere else. That it's only in the heart of God that this kind of love is present and will always be there for you. And this kind of unconditional love is offered to you today. So I love this story about Nicodemus so much. And what's amazing is Nicodemus shows up two other times in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 7, Nicodemus shows up and the Pharisees are debating back and forth about Jesus and Nicodemus kind of veiledly stands up for him. He's like, well, maybe we should give him a chance. Maybe we should listen to, to what he has to say. And he parts off the scene again. Nicodemus shows up one more time in the Gospels and it's in John chapter 19. Jesus has died on the cross. All of his disciples have abandoned him, have left, have run away. And who's there to take the body of Jesus off the cross and bury it? It's two men, one named Joseph of Arimathea, and then it's Nicodemus. He shows up. It's not at night anymore. It's not in secret anymore. But somewhere along the way, Nicodemus got it. Nicodemus knew and understood who Jesus was. And I can't help but think that as Nicodemus walked by the cross as Jesus hung there for hours, he must have gone by the scene at some point. I can't help but think as, as he was there and saw Jesus on the cross, this conversation came right back to his mind. And he saw and he heard the words of Jesus that just as the Son of Man must be lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, just as Moses did the serpent in the wilderness. And I can't help but think that is him and Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body off the cross and he held his lifeless body in his arms. He thought to himself, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Nicodemus got to see and got to hold, but ultimately he still had to believe. We don't get to see or to hold. But the invitation to you today is, will you believe? Will you believe in what Jesus has done for you? Will you believe and accept this unconditional love into your life that loved you at your very worst? So Jesus went and died for your sins, that you could know him, that you could experience the love of God poured out into your life and be changed forever because of it. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? And as we do so, just in the quietness and stillness of this place, in this moment, the invitation is for you this morning 
And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, maybe you've heard the stories, you've known of Jesus for a long time, but you've never actually made it true of yourself. You never placed your faith in Jesus. Or maybe this is all new and the stories of Jesus are, are you're hearing for the first time and you're saying, yes, I wanna believe in Jesus. I wanna believe what he's done for me. I want that kind of unconditional love in my life. With every head bowed and eyes closed, if that's true of you, I just wanna pray with and for you this morning. So if you wanna believe in Jesus this morning, would you simply just raise your hand this morning? Amen. Amen, it's not what you've done but what God has done for you in Jesus. If you raise your hand, you can simply pray this prayer with me, placing your faith and trust in him. God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that on the cross, he showed his love and paid for my sin. Jesus, today I believe and I place my faith in you for salvation. Help me to trust in you, I pray. God, we thank you for the love of Jesus expressed on the cross for us at our very worst. You loved us. God, would the love of God be the overarching theme of our lives? May we as your children realize what it's like to live in the love of God for us. That's not about our performance because it's based on your promise that you will and you always have loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.